You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. So if you came in late, we talked about how today is National Unity Sunday, and it's in partnership with an organization that seeks to call out the need of the church to bring unity into the world uh, by tending to the differences among us and to pursue it uh, in the form, uh, in our country, in the form of racial reconciliation. Uh, so I want to ask you, if you will, to either scan the QR code on the screen to get your church center app. All that you need will be there. Uh, otherwise, you can follow along on the screen here in a moment where there will be uh, a, a, lot of, um, a lot of scripture for you to, a lot of scripture for you to read along the way. But we'll get the QR code up here in a moment. Uh, Galatians chapter 1 is where we're going to be. And there's the QR code. So you can scan that. It's on your church center app. Give you everything you need. Uh, but Galatians chapter 1. Now, we're going to do a lot of Bible reading today. So please follow along. So here we are in the Roman province of Galatia. The Apostle Paul has established a number of Gentile churches. Now, if you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile. You with me? And Gentile is a big word that captures all the different non-Jewish ethnicities. It's also cultural, right? Because people of different ethnic uh, uh, identities come with different cultures, right? Uh, we talked about that last week. If you weren't here last week to talk about social construction, then you'll have to go back next week because uh, I'm not going to recap all that. You'll have to go back to last week and see. But in the world in which we live, ethnic identity comes with culture. Gentiles are non-Jewish peoples. So Paul in Galatia establishes a number of Gentile congregations. The Christ followers there paid a price when they announced, when they renounced their idolatrous allegiance to false gods, which would be the Greco-Roman gods, and committed their lives to God revealed in Jesus as King and Lord. And although Jesus was an ethnic Jew of the Jewish faith, Paul insisted that faith in Jesus as Lord does not obligate Gentiles to convert to Judaism, such as through, through sort of Jewish ethnic expressions and rituals as like circumcision and festival keeping. Now, if this sounds a little boring to you, this, here's the thing. If we're going to read our Bibles well, we have to know that this is happening because Paul talks a lot about this, especially a lot about circumcision. So we don't understand that as a mark of Jewish identity based upon their religion and who they are, then it'll be really confusing as to why the conversation seems to circle around this issue because he's talking about something bigger. He's saying, hey, I know you follow a Jewish Messiah, but you don't have to become Jewish to do that. So after a while, though, even though the Galatian people received the gospel, they were baptized, and they formed congregations, after a while, things began to shift because they were trying to work out the social aspects of their faith. I mean, how do Gentile Christ followers and Jewish Christ followers now come together in society as siblings of the household of God? How does it work to live in a Roman-ruled world where Caesar claims divine sonship? How does it work when Gentile Christ followers and Jewish Christ followers have different social identities and therefore different commitments based upon where these identities come from? And it's starting to clash. The good news is they're trying to answer these questions through theological ways, but they're struggling because the reality of ethnic identity, which includes religious commitments and, and, and economic commitments and political commitments, makes it hard for them to understand how the gospel is to be worked out. Society's social, society's social constructs 
work against that in some ways because society isn't colorblind. People may say they are. Society doesn't work that way. Didn't then. Society isn't gender blind. Society isn't economic class blind. Society isn't ethnicity blind. And so the political systems, economic systems, and educational systems that are built based upon ethnicity, religion, economic class, and gender all are at work in the real world and where they live. And they're trying to figure out how do we do life together in this world for real. Because these systems are part of a world where Rome occupies lands that were one time not their own. And they're occupying lands in a world where then people are socially displaced from their motherlands due to this Roman occupation. Life is complicated. So Paul's writing them and trying to anchor this idea that around baptismal identity, everybody say baptismal identity. That baptismal identity becomes our primary identity and it reorganizes all other social realities. And so if the diverse Galatian churches can get this straight, their diversity of differences can come together in mutual submission where Jesus is the Lord. They could actually become a powerful witness and expression of God's wisdom and liberating work to reconcile in unity. Everybody say reconcile in unity. What society keeps separated by the rate of sin and death at work in the world. So Paul says this in Galatians 3, verse 26 through 29. You'll see it on your screen. He says, you are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many as you have been baptized into Christ to put on Christ like a garment. There is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ... Then you are Abraham's seeds, heirs according to the promise. So he's speaking to Jewish connection at that point. Now, here's the thing I need you to see, please. Notice that Paul speaks to the three dominant spheres of social life in Greco-Roman culture. And you got to know this. Ethnic relationships, economic status, and gender relations. These are the three pillars of Greco-Roman society. Paul specifically speaks to those. But I need you to hear this. Or you will miss everything that Paul says after this and before this. We read this and think that what is happening is that Christ is abolishing identities of difference. Christ is not abolishing abolishing identities of difference. Christ is abolishing identities of dominance. The absence of these relationships is not where unity is found. Paul is not advocating for erasure or color blindness or gender, gender blindness or economic blindness. That's not how life functions with laws and legislations and social constructs. And if you think that that's what Paul's doing, then you undercut his entire argument. Paul is not doing that or he doesn't get his argument across in this letter. Paul is pleading for the eradication of identities of dominance, not identities of diversity or difference. When people are baptized into Christ, they do not lose their social distinctions. You know this. We know this, right? Women baptized in a pre-women's rights world didn't lose their womanhood when they went out into society. They were reminded very clearly what their place was, our sisters. 
And then, sadly, the kingdom of God sometimes reflected that place, right? Which is the problem here. That's what Paul's trying to push against. People are baptized into Christ. Do not lose social distinctions that make up our lives. So all the ethnic, religious, political, and economic realities that work in society no longer hold our allegiance, though. And that's the key. Our allegiance is to Christ. And all our other identity markers, although real and beautiful, are no longer primary, no longer hold authority in God's kingdom. Christ abolishes identities of dominance, not identities of difference. But a few years after following Jesus, Peter forgets this. The apostle Peter falls into a trap. And Paul is needed in his life to remind him. So now Paul's writing this, and these issues of religious and social boundaries are threatening the unity and stability of the church. That's what's happening. And so to set the tone, Paul does what Paul often does. He tells a little story about himself. He's given his autobiography. So it's better to let Paul speak. So we're going to read a lot of scripture. All right, you ready? All right, Galatians chapter 1, verse 13 is where we'll start. You heard about my previous life in Judaism... How severely I harassed God's church and tried to destroy it. Pause. If you're not familiar, Paul was a religious and political terrorist. He killed Christians and helped organize the arrest and the killing of Christians. Verse 14. I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my peers because I was much more militant about the traditions of my ancestors. But God had set me apart from birth and called me through his grace. He was pleased to reveal a son to me so that I might preach about him to the Gentiles. I didn't immediately consult with any human being. I didn't go up to Jerusalem to see the men who were apostles before me either. But I went into Arabia and I returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Peter and stayed with him for 15 days. Pause. Paul was a terrorist. He helped murder Christians, one of them being Stephen. So when Paul gets his call by Jesus to go spread gospel... Paul probably has some soul work he needs to do. So he goes to a desert for three years. That's what all that means. But then he comes back and he spends 15 days with Peter. Stays with him there. Verse 19. But I didn't see any of the other apostles except James, the brother of the Lord. Before God, I'm not lying about the things that I'm writing to you. So Paul, for whatever reason, feels the need to say, y'all, I ain't lying. Like what what I said, I'm saying, like it's true. So keep in mind, there's a tone here, or Paul wouldn't have to say that, right? Then, verse 21, I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, but I wasn't known personally by the Christian churches in Judea. They only heard a report about me. The man who used to harass us now preaches the faith, and he once tried to destroy. So they were glorifying God because of me. Paul's probably because they were like, if Christ can save a guy like him, he can save a lot of people, right? So it goes on, chapter 2, verse 1. Then after 14 years... 14 years, y'all. I went up to Jerusalem again with Barnabas, and I took Titus uh, along also. Y'all know, remember Barnabas' name, what it means? What does it mean? Son of encouragement. encouragement. This is is like a fun dude, right? Like, this is the guy you want, son of encouragement. Barnabas' buddy takes Titus. Verse 2, I went there because of a revelation, and I laid out the gospel that I preached to Gentiles for them. But I did it privately. Listen. I did it privately with the influential leaders to make sure that I wouldn't be working or that I hadn't worked for nothing. You can learn a little bit about a subversive witness with Paul. 
He's, he's engaging the key opinion leaders first, right? Verse 3, however, not even Titus, who was with me and who was a Greek, was required to be circumcised. But false brothers and sisters. Now, pause. Hey, y'all, we have false brothers and sisters. You know that, right? That exists. False brothers and sisters, people who claim the faith, confess the faith, operate out of the faith, go to church every Sunday, hear sermons, sing the same songs we sing, maybe come to the same table, who have deviated, strayed from the gospel. It's important because Paul's not willing to unname, he's not willing to let that go. Verse 4, but false brothers and sisters, because notice he doesn't say false people. He says false what? Okay. Who were brought in secretly slipped in to spy on our freedom, which we have in Christ, and to make us slaves. In other words, to hold us captive again to that stuff. We didn't give in. Listen verse 5. We didn't give in and submit to them for a single moment so that the truth of the gospel would continue to be with you. Verse 6. The influential leaders didn't add anything to what I was preaching, and whatever they were makes no difference to me. Because God doesn't show favoritism. You see that? You know what Paul's saying? They made me no never mind. Verse 7, but on the contrary, they saw that I'd been given the responsibility to preach to the gospel to the people who aren't circumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. Because Peter preached primarily to Jews, he was preaching primarily to Gentiles. The one who empowered Peter to become an apostle to the circumcised empowered me also to be one to the Gentiles. James, Peter, and John, who were considered to be key leaders, shook hands with me and Barnabas as equals when they recognized the grace that was given to me. So it was agreed that we should go to the Gentiles while they continued to go to the people who were circumcised. They asked only that we would what? Remember, Remember the poor, which was certainly something I was willing to do. I want to pause. So of all the things that's going on, like Paul's saying, hey, we've got to take the gospel to the people that we don't want the gospel to go to, but we've been called to do it. You keep doing you, we're going to do us, and together we'll do what Jesus wants. And they're like, all right, all right, fine. Hey, but look, check it, check it. Remember the poor. Yeah. Fred, why are you always talking about the poor? Because of that. Like, build a bigger building? Sure, remember the poor. Yeah. Get a new car? Fine. Remember the poor. See what I'm saying? Get a new AC? Cool. We've got to remember the poor. You see, like, that's how this works. Churches that do things that don't allow us then to do and be with and serve people in poverty, we're missing the point. So we're going to go out and reach the world. Well, then, what? Remember the poor. Oh, but we got great global missions. Fantastic. But what? That's how it works. All right, verse 11. But when Peter, listen, here's where, it gets, here's where it gets hard. When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. The word opposed is some of the strongest language you could find in the Greek. It literally says I condemned him. Because he was what? Wrong. He had been eating with the Gentiles before certain people came from James. But when they came, he began to back out and separate himself because he was afraid of the people who promoted circumcision. These are Christians. And the rest of the Jews also joined him in this hypocrisy so that even Barnabas got carried away with them in their hypocrisy. You can see Paul's like, even the son of encouragement fell into the trap. But when I saw that they weren't acting, read this with me, consistently with the truth of the gospel, 
I said to Peter, where? In front of everyone. Did he pull him aside quietly? He said it in front of what? If you, though you're a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you require the Gentiles to live like Jews? Remember Peter, y'all? He's the disciple who stepped out of the boat and walked on water to meet Jesus. Remember how he took his eyes off Jesus and began to drown? But then we say, well, at least he had the courage to step out of the boat. Remember how on the night Jesus was betrayed and Roman officers came to arrest Jesus and Peter grabbed a sword to take a swing and cut off the ear of one of the high priests? Remember how Jesus rebuked him for taking matters in his own hands and resorting to violence because Jesus always rebukes violence, by the way? Remember Peter? We say, well, at least he had the courage to do something. Remember how in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost, Peter stood before thousands of people from many nations and boldly preached the gospel? You remember how his sermon came to a climax when he said among thousands of people from all over the place who were his countrymen and women who had Jewish ethnic roots? He said, therefore, let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Looks like Peter found his courage again after that abandoning Jesus moment. Remember how in Acts chapter 4, Peter was arrested with his friend John for healing a man who couldn't walk? And remember how he stood before Jewish leaders and politicians among the, sort of the Jewish Supreme Court, and they were told to stop preaching about Jesus? You remember how he said, whether it's right for you, whether it's right in the sight of God for us to listen to you, or rather than to God, you go on and decide, because we're unable to stop speaking about what we've seen and heard? Remember Peter? Remember how in Acts chapter 10, Peter received a vision from God that he was to be the very first person and as a Jew to take the gospel to a Gentile man named Cornelius? Remember how up until this point, every church of Christ was filled with only his countrymen, Jewish men, women, and children who decided to follow Jesus as Lord? And remember the persecutions and struggles that they endured as they courageously remained loyal to Jesus as king in a world that said Caesar is king? And you remember how Peter chose to baptize Cornelius, a Gentile, and how he had the courage to go back to the leaders of the church, his Jewish countrymen, and face the fire of disgust that Jews felt for Gentiles due to their feelings of ethnic superiority as he courageously reminded them that Christ welcomes all. You remember that, Peter? And in the letter to the Galatian Christians, Paul tells us how he spent a great deal of time with Peter, and Peter had the courage to accept Paul, a man who once killed Christ followers as a religious and political terrorist. And then Peter then has this moment where he has this whole life witness of choosing courage over safety, where he has this moment where he chooses safety and the approval of others over courage. Throw him in jail, threaten his life. Peter had the courage to make the right choice despite the cost. But in this point, somewhere along the line, his courage and wisdom ceased to be courage, courageous and wise. He turns instead to fear and foolishness. Peter turns back to his Jewish ideology, which promoted a form of ethnic superiority. And that's what was dividing the church. So according to Paul's retelling of the story, 
Peter had no problem sharing a table with his Gentile siblings in Christ until James, a close friend of Peter and leaders in the church in Judea, sends some men to see how the Christ followers are doing. And then when they come, Peter separates himself and doesn't eat with Gentile Christ following siblings anymore because he, he denied them because he feared his Jewish Christ following siblings instead. And Peter, who is this leader of the church, when he denied his Gentile siblings a seat at the dinner table, so too then did the rest of the Jewish siblings following, follow him, even Barnabas. And when Paul sees this, he's angry, and he calls Peter out publicly in front of the whole congregation made up of both Gentile and Jewish Christ followers. Peter was put in a situation to make a hard decision, one that would take courage and wisdom, and to make the right choice would be painful and potentially costly. But if James' cohort sees Peter sharing a seat at the dinner table with Gentile Christ followers, what's going to happen to Peter's reputation? I mean, what could happen to his life? It's one thing to baptize him. Clearly the Gospels made it clear that they are accepted by Christ, but it doesn't mean you have to share a table with them. And just as much as the Jewish people had a long history of nationalistic commitments... The Jewish people also had a long history of being persecuted by Gentiles and the nationalistic commitments of other Gentile empires. So in this moment, the struggle is real. So let's all be humble here because if Peter could do it, guess what? I know I could. Peter learned eventually that his hands and feet must follow his confession. He learned that he had to live the sermons that he preached. The confession of his lips had to follow the actions of his life. And if he was going to be faithful to the gospel of reconciliation, then he had to embody the reconciliation he preached. Because to not do so was dividing the church. But I need you to hear something. Paul had to name it for what it is. And we live in an American church moment where naming it is called division. You know what? Not naming it is called division. And so Peter learned he had to name it. But he learned that he had to embody what he named. And so in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 15 through 16, he said this. It is God's will that your honorable lives should silence those ignorant people who make foolish accusations against you. For you are liberated, yet you are God's slaves. So don't use your freedom as an excuse to do evil. If you really want to do the work of unity, then we have to do the work of reconciliation. And reconciliation will require the work of repair. And especially when it comes to a society of racialized cultures that have built itself on the back of racialized identities. Are you with me, church? And if you do that... You cannot seek the approval of others, even other Christ followers. And you know what? They're going to call you names. Believe me, I've been called them all. They'll say you're not liberal, you're not conservative enough, you're too liberal, you're too progressive, you're too Marxist, you're too socialist. You are, they may even say you're too conservative. You're too, you're, well, all the different things. They're going to call you all kinds of things and just go ahead and know that that's what's going to happen. But here's the thing that I would encourage you to remember. When somebody uses a label to describe you, it says more about them that they had to try to find a label for you than it says about you. Because to seek unity is to do the hard work of love. And you can take a cue from Paul. You ain't got to listen to them. 
They don't add anything to you. They can make you know never mind. But if we're going to embrace the fullness of a unity weekend, a unity Sunday, then we have to remember how unity comes. Unity comes as a result of love. Of faithful love. Of courageous truth-telling love. And of the hard work of even being willing to be called out so that we can correct and move toward the work of love. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to pray. So let's all stand together and let us pray for this Unity Sunday. Lord, as we remember your prayer for unity, we remember how you taught us to pray. We are learning that we cannot merely pray to you, O oh God, to bring unity to the church. For we know that you have filled us with your Holy Spirit given us the holy scriptures, and called us to the highest law of your kingdom, the law of love. Yet we see our divided world. We see our nation divided. We see your church divided. And we know that your heart breaks by all the ideas, intentions, and actions that divide us. And so we pray for unity. But we are learning that we cannot just pray to you, Lord, to bring an end to all that divides us. We cannot just pray to you, Lord, to end despair, for you have already given us the Holy Spirit of power to do the work of mercy and justice and give hope. If only we would use our power justly. We cannot just pray to you, Lord, to get rid of prejudice, bias, or racial injustice among us. For by your Holy Spirit, you have already awakened our eyes to see the image of God in all people. If we would stay awake and see others rightly. We cannot just pray to you, Lord, to bring an end to violence. We know that you have made the world in a way that people must learn to cooperate and choose the path of peace within themselves and with their neighbors. We cannot just pray to you, Lord, to end starvation, for you have already given us the resources with which to feed the entire world if we would only use them wisely and cease gripping and grasping. Therefore, we pray to you instead, Lord, for conviction, for strength and courage to live the truth we believe, to do as you taught us, and not seek the approval of others. And instead, live as those who are approved by you in Jesus Christ, our Lord and King. We pray instead that we would live the confession we make. To do instead of just pray. To join you in the answering of these prayers. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. One God unified in perfect love. Now and forever. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. 